Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good late night, depending on where you are in the world. Today, we're going to talk about an item that's been hitting a lot of headlines, New York Times, some other ones about aspirin and prevention in cardiovascular disease. So the, you could look at it, and most people would look at it and say, well, does aspirin prevent cardiovascular disease? And what you saw, what you actually saw on the headlines was several different versions of uh, studies, and then even the American College of Preventive Medicine saying, we don't recommend aspirin for primary prevention. Now, that sounds simple, but like so many things in life, it's not quite as, there's a little bit more to it than that. You know, some people might say, well, doc, don't you recommend baby aspirin a lot? And the answer is, oh yeah. And the next question would be, you know, the, the groups, the American college, the, the standards committees, the American college of cardiology, the American college of preventive medicine, they're still recommending it a lot as well. Even though you're seeing headlines that say they don't. We're going to go a little bit into detail in terms of what they're actually recommending to help all of us understand a little bit better what actually happened. As, as before, again, it's not quite as simple as you might have thought. Um, and it's a critical point for the vast majority of us. In fact, um, most of the reporting is, is making assumptions that really makes the reporting wrong. The actual change, um, I think, is the correct change. Um, and at the end of the day, even though a lot of people were not managing this appropriately, a lot of it's going to end up coming out on the right end of this anyway. And now, what does all that mean? That sounds kind of cryptic, doesn't it? Give us a few minutes. We'll, let us dig into the details and we, we'll talk about what all those things actually mean. So uh, for those of you who haven't uh, been to this channel, don't know what we're talking about, what we do, we basically look at the things that are most likely to kill and disable you. And unfortunately, the science is pretty clear your typical primary care docs that are responsible for helping you in these spaces don't understand a lot of this very well. Uh, one of the biggest, well, by far the biggest driver of cardiovascular disease is actually unrecognized, undiagnosed prediabetes. And you're, again, the science is really clear. Docs don't understand how to diagnose it, let alone manage it. So therefore, over 90% of us and think baby boomers, think having a few extra middle-aged pounds. Those are both big issues, but, you know, baby boomers that don't have extra pounds, thin baby boomers can have this too. And actually there's some other groups as well. But over 90% of us that have this problem, 90, 95% don't know it. That's why you've got this concept out there that, you know what, unpredicted, unknowing, you could have a heart attack or a stroke lurking out there in your future and not know about it, not be able to predict it. Well, 
That's true. You know, some of the things that we talk about that in standards of standards of medicine about, quote, predicting, assuming that you can predict a heart attack with something like a stress test, that just doesn't work. We talk about that. We talk about what does work, what doesn't work. But unfortunately, you need to spend a little bit of time and understand some of the things that your doc might not understand. If he or she does understand it, they might not spend the time that they need to to help you understand it. So this is where you can get that. Um, one of the topics that we've covered recently is that CT angiogram, a new way of looking and measuring plaque. Because again, we don't have the greatest ways of uh, figuring out plaque in the standards of medicine. And so we just sort of guess. Knowing whether or not you have plaque is going to become a critical part of the discussion today in whether or not to use aspirin. And again, it's one of the things that you'll see uh, change. Um, <clears throat> people think, uh, what, well, what the, the standards have changed means that they're saying don't take aspirin. They have always said, take aspirin if you have cardiovascular disease. Well, what they didn't put together with that is, well, how do you know if somebody's had cardiovascular disease? A stress test? That's not going to tell you. A stress test is not going to show that you have plaque uh, until you've got over 50% of the flow occluded. So, Again, you start putting these things together and it, things become much clearer. We'll go into that a little bit more during the, the discussion today. Another topic we've covered recently is unlocking the secrets of sleep. Sleep is a critical part for longevity and uh, improving health, staying healthy as long as you can. But again, uh, it's neglected. People don't uh, tend to to understand the importance of it. We spent a, a good bit of time on one of our recent videos with Dr. Dedia talking about that. Uh, coronary angiogram, another um, assumption similar to stress tests that, oh, you know what? If you get an angiogram, you know exactly what's going on in there. Mm, no, not exactly. So uh, if you have an interest in learning more and saying, you know what? Gosh, you got like a thousand videos out there, which we do. Uh, I'd like to just focus on some of the things that I need to know that will save my life. We've got several different ways of doing that. One is the webinars. With the webinars, you can get, uh, so for example, with the plaque webinar, you can get uh, a CIMT. You can share your results with others or with uh, me. We go over those in a group where we look at specific examples of uh, plaques uh, of CIMTs. Just getting a CIMT, number one, is difficult enough. Then number two, once you've got it, how do you interpret it? We have an insulin resistance webinar. Again, a great way of saying, well, it's hard enough to get the right testing, but once we get the right testing, how do you interpret it? Again, the webinar is a great way to do that. Uh, we do that uh, a little bit differently in the um, the courses. We've got core courses on insulin resistance, understanding the basics of it, cardiovascular inflammation, heart attack and stroke prevention conference, and plaque. Again, the things that docs tend to not understand very well, 
and clearly don't take the time to communicate to patients, even if they do. In an hour and uh, spending 19, anywhere between 19 and 39 bucks, you can start learning what you need to know to save your life. Um, I'm going to skip over a couple of these things uh, and go straight to, well, let me just make one comment. Uh, as you'll see today, uh, every other week, uh, most of these times, I'm coming in from our project down at uh, Alabama, the Jubilee Primary Care Project. The Jubilee Project is growing very rapidly. We've got a lot of appreciation. Folks are saying, this has been so needed in this area of the country. In this area of the country, you get too much of this um, seven minutes with the doctor for something like high blood pressure, uh, heart attack and stroke risk, uh, diabetes, prediabetes, and um, not enough focus on the patient. Our very first patient came in. Uh, we had several reasons for suspecting that he had at least prediabetes. He said, no, nope, I tell you, doc, I've, I've seen, uh, I've been to the docs about four or five times different specialists uh, over the past year. It's really clear I don't have uh, prediabetes. Well, his fasting glucose on that day when he was telling us that came back at 190. So <laughs> if that's not a great example of the kind of need and the kind of appreciation, now he understands a lot more about what's going on with his health. He's lost pushing 20 pounds now uh, just uh, since finding that out and learning what to do. And he's making big impact on his health. So that's what we're doing in the Alabama Project. Uh, give us a call <clears throat> if you have interest in, in that. Um, the stress, uh, the book, we, we started out just a, a book on stress tests and it's still a major focus of that book, but it gets back to one of the critical topics that we've already discussed in the topic today. And that is knowing whether or not you have plaque, because whether you take baby aspirin or not is now and always has been a critical part of whether you take baby aspirin, knowing whether or not you have plaque is the critical piece. And again, I'll, I'll refer to that a couple of times. I'll refer to that a couple of times again as we go through the topic for today. And as I said, most people think, well, doc, let me just go get a stress. Why don't we do a stress test and we'll see if we got risk for a heart attack. So docs tend to think, well, that's the standard way of finding out if you have plaque. Like we said, you got to have over 50% flow occlusion, flow uh, decrease in order for a, a stress test to show anything. Well, guess what? Did you ever think about what portion of heart attacks occur at 50% or greater? About a third. So in other words, a stress test is going to miss. By definition, the way it's designed, it's going to miss about two thirds of us that are at very significant risk going into a heart attack. So that's, there's a book about that. We go into detail in the book. We also talk about that critical piece. Well, how can you predict heart attack risk? How can you detect plaque? 
So we've had each week we get a few comments about folks saying, yeah, I'm reading the book, Doc. You didn't give it enough credit. It's important. Uh, it's a good book. Um, help, help get that information out there. So thank you for your feedback on that. And now let's go into a little bit more detail on the topic for today. Does aspirin prevent cardiovascular disease? So this came up with this article, and again, multiple uh, references on this article. Uh, it's a recommendation from a couple of the um, standards committee. This was a standards committee from coming from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, back when I was at Hopkins, they that was, gosh, what, in the 80s, early to mid 80s? That's when they actually formed the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Uh, I was running the residency in preventive medicine at that point in time when they formed the U.S. Uh, preventive Services Task Force. And they basically used, we use our residents to develop the original science reviews for the very first U.S. Preventive Services Task Force guidelines. So the way the guidelines work is you get a, a bunch of uh, global experts together. They review the science that has been, uh, that's available on a topic, the um, research, the studies, the meta-analyses. They get together, they discuss it, and they say, okay, what level of what kind of uh, recommendations are we going to come out with? And that's what this is. And there's been a big change in this. The big change has been to say, hmm, we don't recommend baby aspirin for uh, primary prevention. Now, here's where the confusion starts. What is primary prevention? Well, in the it, it, with the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, the American College of Preventive Medicine, uh, American College of Cardiology, they have tended to say in the past, based on age. Well, that... Uh, they said, you know, we're not talking about looking for whether you have plaque or not, but just based on age. 55 years old was, was the most common standard. Start taking baby aspirin. Now they're looking at that and they're saying, hmm, you know what? Unless you have other risk factors, specific risk factors, or uh, clearly unless you have known cardiovascular disease, we're not sure that's appropriate. We're not sure that works. So let's talk about that. So a report ba uh, based on research conducted by the Kaiser Permanente, evidence-based practice in association with the Agency for Health uh, Care Research and Quality, ARC. Uh, that's where this came from. The purpose was to review evidence on the effectiveness of aspirin to prevent myocardial infarction or heart attacks. The data sources, Medline, which is a big uh, uh, database within the... Uh, uh, the um, public uh, PubMed, uh, both of them public, uh, publicly available uh, compendia libraries of medicine. The Cochrane Collaboration Registry of con Controlled Trials. For those of you who don't remember, Cochrane is the standard in the world for meta-analyses. For those of you who don't remember what meta-analyses are, 
A meta-analysis is where you take all the research that's out there on a specific topic, like, for example, this one, use of baby aspirin or aspirin for prevention of heart attack and stroke. Take every, there's been tons and tons of studies. You take all of those studies, you put them together the best you can and say, okay, when you review the whole, you'll call that a literature review, meta-analysis. You review all the science. Those are the kind of terms you'll hear. Uh, that's what Cochrane does. Cochrane, by the way, for those of you who don't know, is actually now part of Wikipedia. Yes, Wikipedia. Interesting uh, relationship, but that's where it is. So you looked at these three major sources, Medline, PubMed, Cochrane Collaboration Reg Re Registry for Controlled Trials or Meta-Analyses to identify research between January 2014 and January 2021. To see, does aspirin use prevent cardiovascular disease and colorectal cancer? We'll talk about colorectal cancer at a different uh, date. We're focusing specifically on cardiovascular disease right now. Evidence for update for the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. So that's what the update is. It's a significant change. The data analysis. Meta-analysis was conducted to estimate the effect size of aspirin in preventive heart attack, stroke, and cardiovascular disease-related death. What were they using? Low-dose aspirin. They tend to call it baby aspirin. Baby aspirin is 80 milligrams a day or 81 milligrams uh, a day. Uh, Low-dose aspirin overall is generically 100 milligrams per day or less. Uh, your typical adult aspirin is 300 milligrams or 360. This research was focused on the benefit of aspirin for primary prevention. Again, critical piece here is primary prevention, only for people without cardiovascular disease. And as we get deeper into this, that again is gonna be the critical part of the definitions here. The author's hypothesis was that aspirin has lower potential benefit because of a high use of statins. Well. I have different hypotheses, but we can talk about that later too. More aggressive blood pressure control, lower smoking rates. Here's the thing. And you heard this first, what, two years ago with the Esprit trial and a couple of other trials that started to come out saying, you know what? Cardiovascular, despite so many of the errors and challenges we have with cardiovascular prevention, we are still making huge inroads. Yes, some of it's due to statin use. Whole bunch of it's used due to high blood pressure uh, management. Whole bunch of it's due to lower smoking rates. And a uh, whole bunch of it is due to the uh, popularity of more effective ways of weight loss, for example, with uh, low carb diets. Uh, a lot of it is uh, due to better understanding of how to diagnose the root cause, prediabetes, diabetes in most cases, and manage that. So again, here, here was the analytical uh, framework in figure two. You looked at adults age 40 and older without known cardiovascular disease. And the question was simple, aspirin or uh, no aspirin. Uh, branch number one was did you have evidence of cardiovascular disease um, and colorectal uh, cancer and mortality? 
Or number two, did it cause harm from the aspirin? That's the question. It's very simple. You take people 40 and older without known disease, you give them aspirin. Did it help or did it cause harm? Which one outweighed which? The study included 13 fair to good quality randomized controlled clinical trials, including in total 161,680 subjects. So that's one of the major benefits to the Cochrane studies, the meta-analyses, the lit reviews, science reviews. You can start bunching these studies together. Randomized clinical trials are the, the, the best kind of study to look at, the most critical and important. And then when you start putting them together in a meta-analysis like this, assuming you can get good um, comparison, then that is the state of the art in terms of evidence. Now, that's what the Cochrane rules do. They help uh, scientists understand, is this randomized clinical trial actually something that we can compare and use and pool with this one and this one and this one? So 11 primary care or primary cardiovascular disease prevention trials using aspirin, low dose, less than 100 milligrams per day, showed risk reduction of major cardiovascular events by 10% without differences in mortality. So interesting twist on that. Recent studies that considered statin therapy and lifestyle changes showed reduced effects of aspirin in primary prevention. So in other words, we are getting better at preventing cardiovascular disease. Uh, most uh, science authors are attributing most of it to statins. Uh, and again, statins help, but they're not made. Lifestyle is clearly more important. I don't think that uh, any of the, our scientists would argue that. Maybe there are few, but very few. Aspirin to prevent cardiovascular disease. Other results. Low-dose aspirin is associated with a 31% increase in intracranial bleeds, you know, strokes, occurring in the brain from bleeding and a 53% increase in extracranial bleeding events. Most commonly, what you typically see with, uh, with addition of aspirin is GI bleeds, a little bit of bleeding from the stomach, ulcer kind of stuff. Um, aspirin cardiovascular disease benefits appear to be again with the first, within the first one to two years of administration. And the bleeding harms begin soon after aspirin initiation. So, after you start considering what the other side of this is, you know, you, you get started down this path and you say, well, it's a baby aspirin. Why don't, you know, what's the big deal? Once you get into the details, it becomes a big deal because we're talking about uh, GI bleeding or stroke. So <clears throat> here's a, I mentioned that uh, it got these, these recommendations have gotten a lot of coverage. New York Times headline, aspirin used to prevent first heart attack or stroke should be curtailed, US panel says. As is typical, that's not what they said. What they said is for people that have no cardiovascular disease. That's not the same as first heart attack or stroke, is it? And in fact, what they said was for people without pre-existing cardiovascular disease. And here's the point. I'll make it now and I'll make it again. 
uh, in uh, as we go in further into detail because it's a critical point. It's the point that keeps getting skipped over in headlines like this. What they said is people that do not have pre-existing cardiovascular disease. You remember we went back and we talked about the importance of plaque. If you have plaque in your arteries, you have pre-existing cardiovascular disease. So if you go back and you look at guys like me, and I'm not the only one here, there's a, uh, uh, you'll hear uh, Brad Bale and Amy Deneen. We talk about the Bale-Deneen community. They talk about this issue a lot. We confuse primary prevention versus secondary prevention. Um, and we assume that the only people that have pre-existing cardiovascular disease are people like you see in this headline. And unfortunately, docs often assume that too. The, the professionals that should understand this. If you have plaque, you don't have to have had a heart attack or a stroke already to have pre-existing cardiovascular disease. So here was, here was what came out of this New York Times article. Doctors should no longer routinely start most people at high risk of heart disease on a regular regimen of low-dose aspirin. So again, a major misinterpretation. The U.S. task force also wants to strongly discourage anyone 60 or older from starting a low-dose aspirin regimen. So again, you go back to what was the previous interpretation and what was the previous, quote, preventive recommendation, age 60 or older. Again, uh, a lot of previous ones were age 55 and older. A few years ago, it went from 55 up to 60. And now they're saying, again, if you're thinking about that old guideline, 60 or older, take a baby aspirin. Don't do that based on age alone. You go to the Bale-Deneen community, you go to me. We never said age alone. We said, if you have a plaque, if you have pre-existing disease. There's, again, what they're, why, they're, why are they backing off? Citing concerns about the age-related heightened risk for life-threatening bleeding, strokes, and uh, GI bleeding. Now, the proposed guidelines would not apply to those already taking aspirin or those who've already had a heart attack, or, as we said before, those who have pre-existing disease. I mentioned the ESPRI trial a few minutes ago. This was one of the first trials to come out to start saying, mm, should we be starting people, every 60-year-old out there, on baby aspirin, whether they have plaque or cardiovascular disease or not? And again, now you're starting to get the point Pardon the repetition, you'll hear it a couple of times because of the confusion in the, this guideline and the interpretation. Um, if you're 60 years old and you don't have plaque, you clearly, and you don't have cardiovascular disease, you shouldn't be taking an aspirin. Um, many of us have been saying that from day one. <clears throat> Now, as I said a few minutes ago, one of the areas of confusion about these guidelines really may not have mattered as much on a population basis. And here's what the, that comment had to do with, to provide some clarity. Once you get age 60, the majority of us do have plaque. 
So the majority of us should be taking baby aspirin because it's no longer primary prevention. Again, we I'm sure that'll come up in the discussion a little bit later. I'll leave that and go back to the script here. So the conclusions uh, from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, aspirin should not be used for primary prevention. In other words, age only. It causes too much risk for bleeding. And so we get back, I'll, I'll, I'm giving a lot of repetition to this because of the confusion associated with it. Don't I recommend it? Yes, the key here is primary versus secondary prevention. If I'm finding plaque, uh, you've got, you're now into secondary prevention, which they've recommended aspirin for from day one. If, I'm on, if I don't use a CIMT, if I don't use a calcium score, if I'm only saying, well, wait a minute, the only people that have plaque are the people that have a positive stress test, then I'm missing the majority of people that have plaque. So key points, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force has been saying you uh, use aspirin for primary prevention, age 55 or more recently, age 60. Not, don't look whether you have any risk factors or not. Just put everybody on baby aspirin. Um, primary prevention actually means not an age, but whether you but that you have no plaque. The, the confusion here from day one has been over the issue of, do you have existing disease? Was it plaque? Do you measure existing disease by plaque or simply history of a previous heart attack, previous stroke or positive stress test? That's been the delineating point, the confusion point. They've always said and continue to say that aspirin makes sense for people with cardiovascular disease. If you've got plaque, you have cardiovascular disease. So this is no longer primary. It's secondary prevention. It's not a good idea to recommend aspirin based on age alone. We haven't done, we, meaning myself, uh, bailed and in community members and several other docs have not recommended aspirin based on age alone for many, many years. Uh, and we're proud to say, look, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is catching up. Aspirin is less effective when lifestyle and other medications are involved. Again, this is not new. That's, uh, that was first shown a couple of years ago in the ASPRI trial. So uh, lots of repetition today because the nuances, as important as they are, are pretty subtle. Oh my goodness, I'm going to have to come out of the blocks and uh, make a comment. Uh, LPG12338 gave us a $100 uh, uh, super chat. Uh, if you could show the super chat uh, button, um, I would appreciate it. So uh, Gilbert's showing you how to do a super chat. A hundred bucks makes a big, big difference. Um, I, su I uh, support the vast majority uh, of the financial and other activities for this channel to provide this life-saving type of information, but uh, either through seeing patients and through my own time. But uh, when folks like you, LPG, do a, a super chat, it makes a big difference. A large, we've got staff, we've got staff in a couple of continents, uh, 
Gilbert and Aspen and Sam are over in the Philippines. They do a lot of the technical work. They, Gilbert, for example, co-hosts uh, a lot of our activities. He's also our, our, um, our graphics guy. Aspen does our, um, does our video editing and Sam does a lot of the technical stuff. This takes money. Uh, but uh, again, that part of the team is in the Philippines and a hundred bucks, even five bucks goes a long way in that Filipino economy. We also have a team in uh, Mexico, including a couple of good prevention doctors, Dr. Jesus, you'll see mentioned a few times. Um, uh, they're in Mexico. So again, uh, Mexico, uh, Jesus, Carolina, Ceci, and then uh, Michelle is obviously here in the United States in Florida. So we have a significant team working on these projects uh, every day. We have our standard management meeting prior to this. And uh, these kind of donations help us get this information out. So thank you, LPG. And this year, the comment was, keep up the great work, interesting topic. So I hope uh, we've, got, we've got a few other um, uh, super chats as well. Tired looking for name at 20 bucks and, uh, and uh, Jonathan Hull at 1999. Happy holidays. Thank you so much for both of you guys again. Uh, this kind of these kind of contributions really help us get that inf life saving information out uh, to folks in the world. Uh, one thing you may it, you you may not know, especially if you're new to the channel, is that you're making a true truly go global contribution. Um, a little bit less than half of our views come from the continental United States, and over half of our views go from. Uh, go all over the world. Excuse me, we have, sorry about that. We have patients who um, in all over the world as well, uh, Thailand, Singapore, the Middle East, uh, Europe, South America. Uh, and one other global comment, our number five um, nation in the world in terms of uptake from our uh, our podcasts is now China. So again, very global contribution that you folks are making. And thank you for helping us uh, get that done. Bart Robinson. Good morning, Doc. I've been taking low dose aspirin and low dose Crestor for the last five years. Have a calcium score of 490. Uh, hope the aspirin is helping and not doing any harm. Thanks for your hard work. So thank you for sharing that, Bart. And again, uh, hope this gave you some uh, enlightenment, a little bit of uh, details behind the, uh, as Mark Twain, how the sausage is being made and, and where these recommendations are coming from and where those health related headlines are coming from and how you can't, you got to be careful what you listen to and how you, it's really tempting to overgeneralize. Bart, you've been uh, a long-term viewer and contributor. I, uh, I know from a lot of the comments that you made that you do sweat the details and I'm glad that you do. I hope this helps. Very cold and dreary here in South Jersey, but I'll still do my high intensity skip rope routine outside after the discussion. High intensity uh, rope skipping is a great way for high intensity intervals. As I, I, I still have a few slides for seeing patients and I, it still amazes me that 
we still have so many people out there who think that exercise for cardiovascular prevention is just aerobics. I mean, that was 20 years ago, folks. You know, get with the program. Get with folks like Bart who understand that high-intensity interval training and resistance training are both critical and actually even more important for um, the number one cause, prediabetes and diabetes. So that was uh, LPG's um, super chat. Chuck K, thumbs up, everyone. So, yes, please do. That may not sound like a big deal, but a um, couple of things. You know, uh, YouTube, the social media groups are really managed by the AI, artificial intelligence, the algorithm. And the artificial intelligence, AI, always greatly rates what people do. It's watching the people and then trying to figure out uh, what, how people react to something to suggest, decide whether or not to suggest it to other people. So Chuck Case comment is, look, if you do a thumbs up, the AI is reading that and saying, hmm, people are watching this. They're saying it's worthwhile information. We need to suggest it to other people. Another great way to do that is um, recommend this on your own other social media uh, channels like um, Facebook, uh, Twitter. Once uh, the AI for YouTube recognizes people coming in from references on Facebook or Twitter, other social media channels, it says, oh, wait, this content is a great way to pull people from other media channels. Let's suggest that content. And the point, the more we get that content out there, the more lives we can save. You see it at least a couple of times a month. People say, hey, doc, you know, I took your test and I don't have prediabetes. I've got full-blown diabetes. Or, hey, doc, I learned a lot here. I took your test. I have learned some of this stuff. You've saved our lives, my life. We hear it all the time. It's very, very exciting to hear that. Again, thanks, Bart. Thumbs up. Exactly. Um, Aspen and Gilbert usually will play, uh, post this. If you have interest in looking at other videos, this is a great place to go take a look. Um, Theresia Smith, family history of heart disease, plaque and carotids, calcium score 327, untreated cholesterol, triglyceride numbers are very good. Do I still need to take a statin? Pravastatin versus Lavallo. So it's a great question. Thank you for uh, asking it because it helps people focus on it. If I were to just say this out of the blue, it would be hard to connect on it. I don't recommend, just like I never recommended aspirin based on age alone. I only recommended aspirin if you had risk of throwing a clot. That risk came from having plaque. Same thing. If you don't have plaque, I don't recommend a statin, even if you've got really high cholesterol values. Now, a lot of people you know, would say, well, that's very much against the standards of medicine. Uh, more and more groups, more and more people that are actually uh, becoming part of the standards uh, committees are beginning to recognize this. I expect that, I don't know how long it's going to take, maybe five years, maybe 10 years, but I expect that standard to go the same way that this aspirin standard just went. This aspirin standard just went from incorrect in my mind 
to now it's correct. It's what we've been recommending for a while, for years. We have been saying, mm, even if you're 60, 61, 62, if you don't have plaque, we don't really recommend baby aspirin. Same thing with statins. If we don't have, if you don't have plaque, you don't have risk for heart attack and stroke, at least from the major causes. So it probably doesn't make sense. And we don't recommend it. Um, if you have plaque, unfortunately, for us statin haters, and I would be one of that group, uh, yeah, you should consider thinking about it. Both a statin and aspirin. So no plaque, uh, no aspirin, no statin. We've been saying that for years. Uh, the standards committees have been saying, yeah, anytime you get age 60 and above, go ahead and take aspirin, whether you have plaque or not. They have changed that now. That's what today's program is about. They're saying what we have been saying for years. If you don't have plaque, don't, uh, no need for baby aspirin. Now, is the statin standard going to go the same way? I think it's going to take longer to, uh, for the standards committees to get there with the statins, but I expect they'll end up there uh, someday as well. Great question. Thank you. And it helps us create some, uh, maybe some uh, further simplification, uh, simplification by helping people understand the actual standards for both statins and baby aspirin. <clears throat> so let's get to Dan Mac 420 daily low dose aspirin has been shown to cause brain bleeds. Well, yeah. And so you say, well, gosh, brain bleeds. Well, doc, should, should we take it? If, even if we have cardiovascular disease, unfortunately, yes, uh, I do, for example, and uh, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends that. We've been recommending that for a long time. And you say, well, yeah, but brain bleeds are serious. Yep, they are. And guess what else is serious? Uh, ischemic stroke, stroke from a clot is uh, just as bad as stroke from a bleed. And guess what? Heart attacks, bad too. And heart attacks happen from clots. And 50% of people that have their first heart attack find out by dying immediately. So yes, heart attacks are very serious as well. And as you began to start thinking about these things that we're talking about, you realize that the decision on whether or not to take baby aspirin is not uh, just a silly decision. It's an important one. Thank you for bringing that up. So Jonathan Hull, Good morning, Dr. B. I've heard that you, if you think you're having a heart attack, that you should immediately chew on two adult aspirins. Is that correct? And what's the mechanism? Yeah. So again, uh, great point. It, you see that recommendation a lot. I think it's a very solid recommendation. And here's the point. Even a couple of adult uh, aspirins can help you with that mechanism. Well, you asked what the mechanism is, and I mentioned it. So here's the thing. Most people think that a heart attack or a stroke is basically the plaque closing, slowly closing, finally closing off the flow in that artery. That's not what happens. What happens is this, the top comes off of a, an unstable plaque, hot plaque, liquid plaque, 
touches the bloodstream. When it does, it causes a clot. And the clot is what causes the heart attack or the stroke, not the, uh, not the plaque itself, the soft plaque with cardiovascular inflammation. Maybe you're beginning to connect some dots now. Uh, the soft plaque touching the bloodstream, causing a, a clot, that's what causes ischemic stroke, the most common stroke, and that's what causes heart attack. So then that helps you understand a little bit more about why and when we would recommend uh, baby aspirin. Well, what does the baby aspirin do? Uh, in preventive mode, it helps, you know, if you do have soft plaque, if you are dumping that soft plaque into your arteries, and some people are doing that off and on for years before they have that uh, heart attack or stroke that you know, does a lot of damage. Uh, if you're taking that baby aspirin, that slows down those, the clot formation, which is that final common pathway for the heart attack and stroke. Now, uh, to your point, Jonathan, that's where the whole mechanism of uh, chewing two aspirins if you think you're having a heart attack comes in. They're saying, okay, you know what? If you're having a heart attack, if you really are having a heart attack, this has a, a chance, even though it's small, of helping decrease the, the clot that's causing this problem. Hope that helped. Thanks. It's a great question. As we mentioned before, uh, tired looking for name, John Tocho, uh, LPG, uh, several folks are, are making some very one, wonderful contributions. We appreciate it. And again, helping getting uh, life-saving information out to uh, the world. Tired looking for name as a usual gratitude and Jonathan Holt. Happy holidays. Thank you for what you're doing. You're saving lives. God bless. Thank you again for helping us. Chuck Becker. <clears throat> I had searched all around for how to wean off of 81 aspirin. I embarked on a system to wean so very slowly and carefully spanning over four months. I had my first heart attack in the beginning of fourth month. Hmm. <clears throat> Chuck, thank you so much for sharing that. You know, I'm going to repeat that because, uh, again, it's so easy to misinterpret the information that you see, you saw in that New York Times headline. They're saying, hmm, you know, stop the baby aspirin. And I'm hearing doctors say that. Doctors don't understand the details of what we just covered today. And they're saying, oh, stop taking baby aspirin. Ah, no, especially if you have plaque, don't. Stop. Chuck Becker, I had searched all around for how to wean off of the 81 aspirin. I embarked on a system to wean. So very slowly, carefully spanning over four months, I had my first heart attack beginning of the fourth month. Rahul Sharma. Hi, Doc. <clears throat> I couldn't buy the physical copy of the book due to my salary being $200. Uh, well, the book is like 12 bucks, but I think we're talking about a different kind of dollar here. I did buy the ebook version. It's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that, Rahul. I did get a few tests for inflammation done, which were normal, plaque 2, APOB. Thank you so much for sharing that, uh, Rahul. And I think you've got some more information here. I'm yet to get the CIMT and CT angiogram done, which I'm scared of due to radiation. Well, just some clarification. I think you know this, and I think there's just some clarification here. CIMT has zero radiation. It's a, an ultrasound, and ultrasound is not what we call ionizing radiation. CT angiogram does have some radiation, as does calcium score. 
But again, I think when we're looking at the dangers associated with cardiovascular disease, I would recommend that, you know, you weigh these and I've had my own calcium score. I've had multiple CIMTs because again, no radiation. We go into a lot of depth. Thank you for bringing it up, Rahul. We go into a whole lot of depth on this detail of radiation, what makes sense, what doesn't, and how much risk you're looking at. I, I guess I will just try to manage the inflammation markers for a few years. Please bless me for good health. We'll bless you. And thank you so much, Rahul, for sharing what you're doing. Chuck K. Hi, Doc. How does aspirin work to prevent, to affect cardiovascular events? As we said, aspirin doesn't really stop uh, plaque buildup. What aspirin does do is this. Um, if you have plaque, you know, the real problem with plaque is not so much the plaque itself squeezing things off, squeezing off the flow. The problem is uh, friendly fire, your own immune system attacking that plaque, trying to get that plaque out of there. It softens that plaque up and it turns it into what we call hot plaque. That hot plaque, if it goes out into the bloodstream and touches the blood, it can cause a clot. That's the problem, the clot, not the plaque itself. So if you can keep plaque um, from getting inflamed, if you can keep plaque solid, then you're good, you're safe because you're not going to get the plaque squeezing out into the bloodstream. Even if you get plaque squeezing out into the bloodstream, hot liquid plaque, if you can keep from forming the clots again, you're good. So the second piece, uh, keep from forming the clots, that's where baby aspirin comes in. The first piece, keeping that immune system from attacking that plaque, that's actually where the, low, the, where the statins come in. And that's when I said, you know, I do recommend statins if you have plaque. Low-dose statins. You don't need high-dose statins to decrease that cardiovascular inflammation process. So, Chuck, okay, thank you so much. You gave me an opportunity to just, again, hopefully help people understand some of the maybe subtle but critical details of what we're talking about here for saving lives. Leo Acapulco, good morning, Dr. Brewer. What about GERD? Yes, GERD's an issue, too. I mean, GERD would come at... For those of you who don't know, GERD stands for gastroesophageal reflux disease. That's where you, um, you, you get acid coming up from your stomach and burning the esophagus. Anything that causes more inflammation decreases the mucus covering of the esophagus or the stomach or GI tract can increase something like GERD. So yes, part of those uh, side effects, bad side effects, risks, uh, problems associated with bleeding and inflammation in taking aspirin is GERD. So thank you so much. So I believe we just, um, Rahul, so let's see if we can go to that. Speaking, uh, see if we We'll cover that in just a minute. Both Rahul and, jo and John Tocho has, have made con significant contributions. I wanted to acknowledge that. We'll, we'll acknowledge that when they, we get down there. Um, Theresia Smith, I'm taking Eliquis. It's a blood thinner. It's a great blood thinner. Thank you so much for bringing it up. If aspirin is a blood thinner, it's associated with stroke, should I discontinue Eliquis? So 
Thank you. So, no. I if you're on, if you have plaque, you need to be at least on baby aspirin. Now, when would you take baby aspirin versus Eliquis? Baby aspirin uh, for standard folks that have plaque, but somebody like me, I really need to be on Eliquis. Why Eliquis? Because I have paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Oh my Lord, what are we talking about? Yet a whole new other uh, complicating issue. I, I never promised that all this stuff was that simple, but it's important. You need to know it. If you, if you have atrial fib, Atrial fibrillation is a chaotic beat. It's the most common uh, dysrhythmia of, uh, that humans have. Dysrhythmia, heart, uh, heart dysrhythmia. It's very, very common, especially as we get older. If you look at me, I've shared, I've got a series of videos on this very specific topic uh, on atrial fib um, and the risk that it, that it creates again five to eight times the risk for stroke that other people would have. Why so much higher? The bottom line is that we don't know for sure, but here's some logic that we do know. Atrial fib causes the atria, you know, two of the four important chambers of the heart, instead of, uh, excuse me, beating regularly, they beat chaotically and, pardon me, they, maybe the images are not great, but they never, if they don't beat like this, you never get the blood completely out of the, of the atria. That's the problem with atrial fib. And what has been discovered is aspirin, baby aspirin decreases risk of, of stroke from uh, atrial fib a little bit, but not very much. And why would that, Eliquis, what we call the oral uh, anticoagulants, OACs, DOAX, um, uh, that's another term you'll hear, NOAX, new or novel oral anticoagulants, uh, Rivaroxaban, Xarelto, Eliquis. These things, if you went back and looked at these and compared those to baby aspirin, especially for somebody with atrial fib, which is a lot of people, the risk benefit from those would be far higher for aspirin. And then you start looking at um, other folks and it's competitive with baby aspirin anyway, because these are very good medications. So why isn't everybody taking them? They're very expensive. And the expense, the added expense on those is just not worth um, worth it when you start comparing non-atrial fib related stroke stroke risk. So I touched on a few things. Hopefully that helps pique your interest. Uh, we're not going to be able to cover all of it today. Like I said, I've got a dozen videos which goes into that specific item. If you were put on Eliquis, you very probably have one of those very significant risk factors like atrial fib. And don't say, well, uh, I don't have my atrial fib anymore. That's not likely to be true. The vast majority of atrial fib, people don't know they have. It's like the vast majority of prediabetes, even diabetes. People don't know they have it.
Uh, Equin Susie Q, do you take aspirin for pulmonary artery hypertension? Uh, it's a different issue. It's a great question. I am going to pass on that, Equine Susie Q. I, uh, I think I would cause more confusion than, uh, than clarity if I answered that question. I will just say this. The vast majority of people who have pulmonary artery hypertension uh, are going to be on it, some kind of uh, either baby aspirin or one of the or other anticoagulants for or thinners, antiplatelets. Uh, for uh, related reasons. Amer Al-Gayer, hi from Germany. Hi, Amer. Thank you so much for tuning in. You joined us quite a bit. And we appreciate it. M-Ball, Vector 5 Leiden. Thank you so much for bringing it up. It's an unusual thing. Uh, you won't find a lot of people that have it, but of the people that do, it's a big deal. It causes increased clotting. Leiden, unless I'm mistaken, I think it's a, it's a city in Europe and I think it's a city in the Netherlands. What has Leiden got to do with anything? Well, there is a genetic variation of people that have significant increases in uh, clotting. And those folks should uh, have yet more reason and more important reasons to be taking blood thinners. Um, if you have, would like to have more information about Factor V leading, I've got a, a video on it. It's a couple of years old, but it's still very, very uh, appropriate for this question. Again, that genetic variation. So I don't think I connected the dots quite clearly enough. That genetic variation that causes this risk, increased risk of clotting, has been linked and traced genetically all the way back to lead in the city in the Netherlands. So great question. Thank you for giving me that chance to go down that bunny hole. Theresa Smith, confusing primary versus secondary prevention. It is, yes. And here's what's confusing. When most folks say primary prevention, they're saying, well, just based on age. Why are they not saying if you have a plaque? Because they don't have good ways of looking at plaques. You know, like we said multiple times, most docs are not using calcium score. They're not using a CIMT and they're not even using a, a CT angiogram. So most docs do not know whether you have plaque or not. That is what's causing this confusion. Thank you for bringing it up. Seems like bleeding would be a problem in both cases. Well, bleeding is a problem in both cases, but here's the point. The probability of a risk, uh, the probability of a heart attack or stroke, if you don't have any plaque, is extremely low. If you have plaque, it's a whole different ballgame. That is the point. So, yes, the bleeding is a risk for both groups, and it's the same. But what changes dramatically is this. If you have no plaque, you've got very low risk for heart attack and stroke. If you have plaque, all of a sudden that risk has jumped way up. And again, don't ask me, ask the standards committees. That rat risk is now higher than taking uh, these blood thinners. Big, big jump in risk. 
John Tocho, remember to smash the like button. Consider joining Patreon. Thank you so much, John. Yes, we didn't mention that. I, um, I don't know if we have a Patreon. I do think we have a Patreon thing here. Yeah, here's a way to do that. Um, you can donate through Patreon. And again, uh, Gilbert's showing right there. Um, again, those are great ways of helping us get this information out there, either through some way free, like a, a like button or, you know, uh, something similar to buying us a coffee once a month on Patreon. Thank you so much, John. No trash in heaven. Thumbs up and a comment like this. Thank you so much. Vape King. My calcium CT score came back with a 269 moderate score, so I began baby aspirin instead of atorvastatin, the doctor originally suggested. No heart attacks yet. I'm 48 and do walk five hours a week. <clears throat> Vape King, one of the, that's, uh, thank you for sharing that. You're not alone. There's a whole bunch of people that are more comfortable taking baby aspirin than there are uh, taking statins. Like I said, that's not exactly what I would recommend. You know, I, I understand the people that, especially the people that come to see me are folks that know a lot about this space. And it's also a lot of people that are statin haters, don't like statins. I do recommend if you have plaque and if you've got a positive calcium score that you consider not only baby aspirin, but low dose uh, statins. I don't recommend atorvastatin. It's not quite as good in terms of cardiovascular uh, inflammation as two other um, statins, low dose Crestor or Resuvastatin or, or uh, Lavalo. So again, thank you for bringing that up. Gladys Fitzgerald, VARC.tech. Not sure what that means. Angela DeLorenzo. Hi, Dr. Brewer. Hello, Angela. Thank you for tuning in and commenting. John Tocha, that uh, $20 super chat. Thank you, John. Thank you, Dr. Brewer, and happy holidays. Tony Phillips just scheduled my calcium score. LPPLA, uh, uh, LPL, uh, I think what you're meaning there is... Uh, LDL particles to 2137. So that brings up a whole separate issue in terms of fractionation or particle count, as opposed to just looking at the standard quote cholesterol score. Quincy Street, love your work, Dr. Brewer. Thank you for sharing knowledge. Well, thank you so much, Quincy Street. I appreciate that. My BJJ, good to hear from you, BJJ. Uh, BJJ uh, stands for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and BJJ has uh, contributed on the channel, came on and told us a little bit about what he was doing, uh, what he was dealing with. Currently taking baby aspirin, 81 milligrams, 54-year-old, 35 calcium score, also have a mechanical aortic valve as of eight months ago, some indications that it lowers clot risk for folks like me. Also on warfarin, any thoughts? Yes, so people ask me about this. Excuse me. Um, hey, Doc, uh, I've got this kind of surgical process, that kind of surgical process. I know you get into prevention. My surgeon's recommending X, Y, and Z. Here's what I would say. Your surgeon is studying very much the specific risk factors that you have once you go into that surgical category. I do recommend that most of us in most cases, some situations I would say, mm, no, that was really not good advice. 
But in most situations, once you go to the extent of having that kind of procedure, your risk categories change dramatically. And the, the surgeon that does that procedure is focused on those specific changes in your risk category. So listen to your surgeon. Thank you so much for asking that question. Darlene Christy Patton, aspirin for AFib without plaque, okay. No, still, if you look at, sorry, thanks, this is a great question. Uh, and many of us are tempted to do it, but more so because aspirin is so much less expensive. But no, if you look at the statistics on uh, use of aspirin for prevention of strokes, it works, but only a tiny bit. So is only a tiny bit of prevention uh, worthwhile? Okay. Hmm, I don't think so. My BJJ, great podcast, by the way, Dr. Brewer. Thank you. Thank you so much, BJJ. Bart Robinson, thanks for addressing my comments once again. You're very welcome. And thank you for contributing those, car, uh, those comments, Bart. Tony Phillips, I have tinnitus, tinnitus, some people pronounce. Aspirin tends to make it worse. Any thoughts, alternatives? We did talk about what may be the most popular alternative. It's that uh, prescription drug that's just, or set of drugs that are just really expensive. Um, I think one of the things, the uh, NOAX or DOAX, the um, novel or oral anticoagulants like Xarelto and, and, uh, and um, Eliquis. Eliquis is the one that I recommend just because of some uh, cost benefit equations. But those are, again, very, very expensive. So people start talking about, okay, are there supplements? Yes, there are supplements. Do any of the other supplements outside of baby aspirin, do they have the kind of research which would say, yes, they're a great alternative? No, I haven't seen any that have. Uh, there are some blood thinners. There are supplement blood thinners. Uh, I've done a couple of videos on that specific topic. Uh, do a YouTube search, my name, blood thinners. It, it should come up as one of the alternatives. And you can learn some information there. Uh, bottom line, end of the day, anything I would just pop out immediately that's a great uh, substitute? Unfortunately, no. Mezzanine, 81 milligram aspirin plus 3K to 4K fish oil daily and 5 milligram of resuvastatin three times a week. Bleed quite frequently with my, uh, freely with minor cuts. What should my level of concern be? Uh, regarding... Um, uh, regarding side effects, uh, again, uh, you've got a calcium score, a positive calcium score. We know you've got plaque. Um, I, I, you know, it, it's unfortunate, but it is where we are. You've got significant risk now for heart attack and stroke. So you've got concern, but you've got bigger concern in the other area. And if it helps you, that's very similar to what I have taken in the past. Um, because of my atrial fib, I uh, tend to take, uh, I, I won't go too, too much into my own issues regarding um, suvastatin, but that, what you're talking about is a great combination that uh, fish oil, the baby aspirin and the resuvastatin. 
Ben Fart Fartin, my BJJ, look into vitamin K2. Warfarin is also known to cause calcification of arteries. K2 is believed to direct calcification. So, Ben, thank you so much for the comment. Uh, K2 is believed to direct calcium to the bones and away from soft tissues like the arteries. What I would suggest, Ben, is that you take a look. We've got about a dozen videos on vitamin K2. And yes, that's clearly the belief. I don't think that's quite that simple either. Most people think, well, you take vitamin K2, it takes calcium out of the arteries and it puts them into the bones. Hmm, probably not. Do I recommend K2? Yes. But like I said, I don't think it's quite as simple as that might sound. I think actually vitamin K2 really has more of an impact on prediabetes. Where did I get that? Again, go check the videos and you'll, uh, you'll get a little bit deeper understanding on the mechanisms and the science behind that. But yes, of course, if prediabetes is your major risk factor for this and calcification, as it is with 80% of us at least, then improving uh, prediabetes status can and could have a positive impact, and I think has. So hopefully that was enough to, uh, to pique your curiosity to learn more. Vijaya Achar, I hope I pronounced that appropriately, Vijaya, if, and I don't know where you're from. So it sounds like you know maybe the United States, maybe somewhere else. If those of you who comment, if we, if you haven't commented before, if you'll let us know where you're from, we'd appreciate it. Hello, Doc. How do you know how to know it's time we need to start taking baby aspirin? Great question, Vijaya. And let me just say it again succinctly. If you have plaque, that's where the problem comes in. That's where the confusion comes in. Uh, most folks will say, well, we don't know you have you have plaque unless you've had a heart attack or a stroke or if you have a positive uh, stress test. Mm, that's going to miss the vast majority of people that have plaque. What's some better ways to find out if you have plaque? First thing I'll say is get that book that we mentioned earlier on, How a Stress Test Doesn't Prevent a Heart Attack, the Prevention Myths book. There, are, To give you the short version, there are three good ways of finding that out. One is a calcium score. Another is the CIMT, and the CIMT has significant advantages over the calcium score, which we won't get into today. But then there's a third, CT angiogram, all of which are better than the standard um, stress test followed by a um, going on to, into the cath lab and getting, a, and getting arteriograms, coronary angiogram. Rahul, thank you so much. Again, uh, 200, not sure what that monetary thing is, but thank you so much, and I appreciate it. Rahul says you're doing a wonderful job, especially for people in developing nations who don't have a good understanding of cardiovascular disease. We're hearing that. We're getting that feedback. Thank you so much, Rahul, for uh, sharing that and making that comment. Bless you and your whole team, and bless you as well, uh, Rahul. We appreciate it. Black Tengu, do omega-3s stabilize soft plaque? Uh, what omega-3s tend to do, they tend to decrease clotting. Uh, as you heard from one of, one of our viewers a few minutes back, uh, they tend to get a little bit more bleeding from uh, casual cuts. World Traveler, I have calcium score of 27.7, uh, 27. 75-year-old male, world traveler, you're already in a pretty 
pretty uh, rare air, thin, um, unusual group. I'm very, very jealous. Very few of us males, by the time we have, <clears throat> by the time we have 75 years behind us, have a calcium score as low as 27. Kudos to you. You've been doing some good work, obviously. And thank you for sharing that. Now, he says it still takes low-dose aspirin, 5 milligrams Crestor to control inflammation. You're doing the exact right thing, world traveler. Thank you so much for sharing exactly that. It makes a difference when people hear this from folks that have the challenge. They're not me. I tend to confuse things. I'm a doc. I get way too technical sometimes. Somebody like you, world traveler, who says, here, I got it. Here's what I do. Simple, easy. Thank you so much. Drax of the North, what preventative role does supplementing with vitamin D and K2 have? Well, we just talked about K2. Many people uh, put vitamin D together with K2. You even find the supplements used together a lot in the same pills. And it has to do with that calcium thing. Vitamin D is a major determinant of calcium. Uh, <clears throat> it also impacts uh, kidney function as well. So of all the supplements that I use and recommend, vitamin D is the, in most cases, the most important, very important supplement. Um, you used to think, they used to say, well, vitamin D was for nothing but prevent, excuse me, I'm sorry, to, a little bit of GI stuff today. So uh, they used to say that vitamin D is nothing but prevention of rickets. Rickets is a bone problem. So again, you start getting into bones and, and bone metabolism, but it also impacts kidney function. And what uh, evidence has come up over the past 20 years is that the old standards were, that we thought, you know, just 25 or above, that's probably still too low. Um, I, the recommendation that you see more often, the recommendation that I would have would be a blood level of 60 to 90 for vitamin D. Um, what are some other things that have come up about vitamin D? Some pretty solid evidence that vitamin D helps us decrease uh, risk for, for uh, diabetes, prediabetes, has a big impact on a lot of other things. If you've been around, uh, seen any of the news, haven't been hiding completely under a rock, if you've heard of a thing called COVID over the past couple of years, this is one of the areas where even the standard purveyors of medicine are coming out. Uh, Hopkins, Harvard, some of the other folks are coming out and saying, uh, you really need to make sure you've got an appropriate vitamin D level, D3. In fact, what, would, what they found was those of us who had D3 levels clearly below 25 had greatly increased risk for the cytokine storm, the serious disease associated with COVID. So uh, I hope that helps. RP, I'm growing new plaque. And by the way, Drax of the North, as with these other things, I've got at least a dozen videos on vitamin D. So uh, Google search, YouTube search, my name, Ford Brewer and vitamin D. And you'll pull up a lot more content if you're interested. RP. I'm growing new plaque where an earlier stent was placed. 60% closed. Is another stent the objective? No. Stopping the growth of the plaque is the objective. And in order to stop the growth of the plaque, what do you need to do? Well, 
You need to find the root cause. What's the root cause? Well, most folks assume that it's having too high a level of cholesterol. Higher levels of cholesterol tend to be uh, associated with it, but they really tend to be associated with it because they tend to be more associated with glucose metabolism problems. At the end of the day, the vast majority of docs know that having diabetes is a major risk factor for creating plaque. What most docs tend to miss, and it's clear in the science, they tend to miss diabetes and especially prediabetes. So that's, that's the key root cause factor that remains hidden that you really need to focus on RP. And if you have any questions, um, you can call Michelle at 859-721-1414. That's 859-721-1414. Gilbert's showing that up there. She can help you get started if you want a little bit uh, clearer um, help, hands-on help in terms of finding that out. Janice Jensen's, is it worth it to take five milligrams of resuvastatin two times per week as a young adult, 25-year-old with normal cholesterol? Again, uh, I... With normal cholesterol is one thing, Janice. Here's the question. Do you have prediabetes? Do you have other, the major risk factors for cardiovascular disease? Do you have plaque? And we don't know the answer of whether you have plaque. I've seen plenty of 25-year-olds that have plaque. So uh, that's what I recommend that you find out first. Do you have plaque? And if you do have plaque, here's the question. What's causing it? And it's much more likely to be prediabetes or diabetes than uh, cholesterol. Great question. Hopefully that, that wasn't the answer you expected, but hopefully we helped get that across. Asadul Islam, thank you so much. And if you could share where you're from. Dear sir, could you please tell me the name of one or two good, reliable brand blood pressure machines? Amron is a good one. Um, again, as I start making references to brand names, then they start cutting off the, um, uh, the YouTube AdSense thing. So, uh, and that's significant for us too. That's very significant in terms of supporting the channel. So if you guys could please help us with that, we'd appreciate it. Now, um, Amron is a great one. Uh, there are a couple of others. I'm blanking on them right now. Amron has tended to be this, the standard. Uh, Janice Jensen's no diabetes. Janice, I would love to believe you on that, but unless you've had an oral glucose tolerance test with insulin resistance or insulin response or a craft insulin survey, unless you've had those and had an appropriate interpretation, I don't know how you would know. Bambi grades. Good morning, Bambi. Great to hear from you. Bambi got us started. I think Bambi may have gotten, helped us get started on that K2 topic. I'm not sure, but thanks. Good morning. Sharon Bond, VOAFO. Don't know what all that means, Sharon. Um, ARBs versus ACE. ACE. What does that mean? A lot of people are on the ARBs. Uh, they, uh, Losartan, uh, Omasartan. Uh, the things that end with that, uh, it's a blood pressure medicine. And it's very much, those uh, blood pressure medicines were developed because you tended to have a cough with their predecessors, the ACE inhibitors, lisinopril, 
um, benazapril, ramipril, the ones that end with IL or PRIL. And so people would say, well, uh, take ARBs. They're better. They don't cause as much coughing. Well, they don't cause as much coughing, but they also, in terms of looking at the research, don't help quite as much either in terms of what's going on with the critical pathway, cardiovascular inflammation. Great question, Janice. Thank you for helping, helping us there. Vijaya Ashar, is taking garlic equivalent to taking aspirin? No. Garlic helps. Is it equivalent to aspirin? No. Uh, again, not familiar with any supplements that are equivalent to aspirin. Some su supplements are blood thinners. Garlic's one of them, but they're not equivalent. Drax of the North. I've been taking Lipitor for 10 years. Is it safe to change from Lipitor to Crestar? I change a lot of people that have been on Lipitor for 10, 20 years or more in that same direction from Lipitor to Crestor or Lavallo. Great question, Drax. Thank you so much. My BJJ, I do actually take 200 micrograms per day of vitamin K2. Thank you so much, BJJ. I appreciate that. ET himself, turmeric versus AS, uh, aspirin. ASA is acetyl salicylic acid, for those of you who don't know. And this is another, another version of that same question that keeps coming up again and again. Is there a supplement that I can take that's going to be as good as baby aspirin? And the answer is no. Bart Robinson, I switched from Lipitor to Crestor three years ago. No problem whatsoever. Just let, great point. This has come up a couple of times. Let me just make a quick comment about that. Remember what we call the statin washout period. Stat, you do not want to have two different statins on board in your body at the same time, even if it's low dose. So you need to, we typically give one week for a statin washout period. And here's why, why. Uh, um, the washout means you stop taking the statin, you wait a week before you start taking the next, the other type of statin, the other statin. Um, uh, one week may be a little bit long for some of the, uh, some of them. Crestor, on the other hand, has a half-life of 17 hours. So that's part of the reason they say, go ahead and make sure that you've got a good significant time period between your last dose of the old statin and your first dose of the new statin. So great. Thank you so much, Bart. Good comment. Vijaya Achar from India. Thanks a lot for your guidance. Thank you so much, Vijaya, for sharing where you're from. We appreciate that greatly. We've had several people from India, but uh, it's good to know. It's a, such a big country. And so much risk for cardiovascular disease in India. I've got a lot of friends that I've worked here in, here, with here in the U.S., an entire family of folks in uh, one of the previous companies I worked with. Major cardiovascular risk problem, major diabetes problems, and huge population, major need of, uh, of prevention, cardiovascular prevention in the Indian subcontinent. FN, hello, Dr. Joe from Belarus. Thank you. I don't think we've heard Dr. Joe yet anybody else from Belarus. Thank you so much. Do you believe that genetic factors are dominant heart disease and diseases in general? Or can we overcome diseases with prevention through diet and exercise? It's a great question. Here's the thing. <clears throat> Genetics loads the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger. You don't have to pull the trigger. Uh, lifestyle, diet especially, and exercise, more important at the end of the day. Believe it or not, 
even if somebody has uh, FH. A lot of people aren't going to believe that. And then that last comment, even if they have FH, it's still, in my mind, lifestyle is more, more important, dominant. Dave Williams, aspirin and nitric oxide. Well, not sure what that means. Theresia Smith, sorry to post again. But do you have a video that discusses the benefits and drawbacks <coughs> of different types of statins? Yes, if you would. <coughs> I'm sorry, just... Um, I've got several videos on statins, and if you will just look at comparisons of statins, we do talk about that. I did get into some comparisons about Lipitor versus the others, and I do have a lot of videos where we talk about that. RP, thank you for taking my question on plaque. I will call Michelle soon. Thank you, RP. I appreciate that. Karen Nault, I have the Omron blood pressure monitor. Love it. <clears throat> it syncs from my phone and can keep the record on the app. You know, these these blood pressure, these automated blood pressure things used to not be so good. That's not the truth anymore. They are good now. Thank you so much, Karen, for sharing that. JB. <clears throat> Excuse me. JB in New York City. Thanks. Well, taking L-arginine help lower plaque accum accumulation. I've got a couple of videos on arginine. If you'll uh, do a YouTube, I mean, if you'll just do a YouTube search, you'll find those. Bottom line is, yes, there's, like many of the supplements, there's clearly evidence that arginine can help. But is it overwhelming? Does it, you know, is it going to get you out of a bad lifestyle? Mm -hmm. No. <clears throat> uh, Janice, Janice, Janice uh, Johnson's from Latvia. Really clear. I haven't had anybody comment that they were from Latvia. Thank you so much, Janice. And I hope that I'm pronouncing that correctly. Thanks for the answers. I know, I, I think you're saying, I know I don't have insulin resistant. Hemoglobin A1C is 5.2 and insulin three in European metrics. You probably don't, <clears throat> but I'll say this, Janus. I've got a whole bunch of people that have full-blown diabetes that have hemoglobin A1Cs that good. I do. So lifestyle impacts this number dramatically. Mezzanine, understanding that cardiovascular inflammation is the root cause and that low-dose statins reduce that, is it advised to as well to incorporate an anti-inflammatory supplement protocol, NAC, uh, N-acetylcysteine, uh, alpha-lipoic acid, omegas, etc. Yeah, it is. And I've got plenty of, we have a, a seminar, webinar that we do on supplements. We have tons of videos on supplements. We've got vid videos on NAC, uh, N-acetylcysteine. We've got, uh, we've covered the omega-3s. We've covered this. And yes, we do think that it makes sense in a lot of situations. Let me just look. We're coming down to the end. Uh, Black Tingu, greetings from Athens, Greece. Athens, Greece. Thank you so much, guys, today for here at the end, starting to clarify where you're from. As you can see, <clears throat> very, very global uh, impact. Uh, can you take red yeast rice with a statin? How long, how does red yeast rice compare with a statin? That's actually an excellent, very, very good question. Now go back. And if you think about a couple of things, I think you would probably not want to take those with a statin. You remember when we were talking about uh, a statin washout period? don't take two different types of statins together. Guess what um, the original statin came from? 
red yeast rice. So what you're doing when you take red yeast rice is you're taking a basic statin component, believe it or not. And I have so many statin haters that say, oh, no, I'm not, I don't like statins. I'm not going to take statins. I do take red yeast rice and I don't have to take a statin. <clears throat> I don't really recommend supplemental red yeast rice because we've got better statins than that today. And then, like I said before, you don't want to have two different statins on board at the same time. So I would not have a statin, a standard known statin plus a red yeast rice. Dave Williams, does aspirin products, uh, nitric oxide in the body? I don't really understand that question. If you're asking Dave, does aspirin create nitric oxide? No, it doesn't. Nitric oxide is very helpful. It helps the health of the, the lining of the artery wall, uh, the, what we call the intima or the, um, uh, well, the intima, the lining of the artery wall, which is critical to this process. But aspirin's impact is not to help um, with the health of that endothelium, is another term for it. Nitric oxide does, does help with the health of the endothelium. Aspirin is a couple of um, things down the, the mechanism, down the chain, and aspirin has to do more with blood clots, preventing blood clots. Gerald Tur, T-U-R, according to your experience, at which level of ratio, trigl I think your triglyceride over HDL, is it recommended to take aspirin? So Gerald, it's a great question. And I, I, <clears throat> it brings up a point. A lot of people come to me and they have their general, uh, in terms of statin information, they have their general statin uh, information, but they don't have a, um, a, the standard um, breakdown of statins, the particle counts, uh, fractionation, things like that. The one, the major thing that I do look at in terms of risk factors from a basic cholesterol panel like that is the triglyceride over HDL. And for those of you who are not familiar with this, Gerald obviously is, I've got a lot of videos on it. A fellow named Chuck Smith, for example, lost 50 pounds. Uh, he was a patient of a well-known uh, cardiovascular prevention doc and lost 50 pounds, then had a heart attack. And then he started when he was he was frustrated. He was an engineer type. He was frustrated while he was in the hospital recuperating from that heart attack and found my video on triglyceride over HDL ratio. We have several of them. So <clears throat> it's really more of an indicator of, card, of uh, cardiovascular disease because of um, glucose and insulin metabolism. And if you have questions about that, where does that come from? Uh, again, just Google my name and triglyceride over HDL. You'll see several videos in this space. I still don't recommend, you know, even if cholesterol is high, even if uh, uh, triglyceride over HDL is high, even if your um, uh, hemoglobin A1C is starting to get up into the mid ranges, if you don't have plaque yet, I don't really recommend that you start out with aspirin and statins. I recommend that you start start looking at your root cause of disease and deal with that first. When you have plaque and not really until you have plaque, do I tend to recommend aspirin or the statins. 
So th uh, FN, thanks for the answer. I meant, hello, doctor. This is Joe from Belarus. Okay, thank you, uh, FN. I appreciate that. Richardson, 75080, Dallas, Texas. Thank you. There's a lot of Richardsons down there. Gerald Tur, Gerald French. Oh, Harold, French from Thailand. Thank you so much. According to your experience, which, okay. We talked about that. Thank you. Bay Area James, San Francisco Bay Area. Thank you so much. Could I take Crestor 5 milligrams and aspirin? I have plaque, no diabetes, past smoker, calcium score of 210, 49-year-old male. I do recommend uh, statin, low-dose statin. Crestor 5 milligrams or less is, is the usual recommendation. Uh, and baby aspirin if you have plaque. I still have to say, unless you've had an OGTT with insulin response, which very few people have had, or a um, craft insulin survey, which is basically the same thing, and again, very few people have had, unless you've had that, I don't know how you know you don't have diabetes. Lee Clark, Australia watching. Thank you, Lee. We've got several people in New South Wales, Australia. We've got patients down there. Told taking 300 milligrams of aspirin causes damage to the liver. 300 milligrams, uh, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I, I clearly wouldn't take that for cardiovascular disease anyway. Rahul again, thank you. Rahul, dear doc, how should people with insulin resistance complete their daily calorie needs? Keto, is it double-toned milk? Fine for them. Not sure with what double-toned milk is. It's a, uh, a good question. So here's the thing. Uh when you say keto, a lot of people think, oh, you know, just pile on the sausage and the fats and the animal fats. I don't really recommend that. Here's what I, I mean. Yes, it's not as dangerous as carbs. Here's the here's the, the bottom line. If you cannot metabolize carbs, if they cause you damage, you really should think twice about eating carbs. And so much of uh so many people's diets is very, very carb laden. And every time they eat carbs, their blood sugar goes up, their insulin goes up, and they cause more cardiovascular inflammation. Harsha Rao. Hey, Dr. Brewer, being a cardiologist myself. Thank you, Dr. Rao, for clarifying. I applaud your education of the community. Great job. I recommend my patients to watch your series and videos. Thank you so much, Dr. Rao. I greatly appreciate that. Um, Great way to end up. Thank you again, Dr. Rao. Thank you for uh, for the, the rest of uh, you folks. Thanks for the the interest, the uh, the support in terms of financial support that we've had today. And um, here's uh, looking for you next time. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.